Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I am your host. Here on The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses, how to build businesses and wealth that would outlive the founders and have sustained impact, not only over time, but also over space. And we have these conversations with genuine curiosity, authenticity and vulnerability inviting voices from all over the world, both business owners and expert teachers alike, to share a thing or two about their learnings from their journey in evolving, transitioning, aspiring towards legacy wealth and legacy businesses. This week, good grief, good grief, Bessie Graham really just blew me away. Bessie Graham is an award-winning entrepreneur with 20 years experience working with business owners, government and large funding bodies to bring doing good and making money back together. She's had incredible experience from the grassroots, sitting in the dirt, working with business owners in the Pacific Islands to the UN headquarters in Geneva. She's seen it all and brings an unparalleled perspective on what makes change happen. She works with people who've made it, but haven't found fulfillment. She helps to put their time, talent and treasure to work in ways that align with values and allow them to create a legacy they can be proud of. Bessie is incredible. We had such a multi-layered conversation on philanthropy, impact, effectiveness, dealing with the psycho-emotional aspects of being a wealth owner and getting very clear on one's values and living out those values in, in, in society. Really enjoy this conversation, so I would encourage you to tune in and enjoy. Hi, Bessie. Welcome to The Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you. So great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited. So you're a serial entrepreneur and impact investor. Tell us more. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, well, it's been an interesting journey. So a bit over 20 years ago now, I had the privilege of working with the first ethical investment advisors in Australia back in 2000. And so that that journey of what was originally called ethical investment, you know, there's been lots of different names for it, but now um, many people are, are referring to it as impact investment, has been something that I've been really interested in because for me it was this place where you could bring together some of the things I loved. So I wasn't just a natural fit to go into business or the nonprofit space or government, mm. but I saw value in all of those places and, and the kinds of issues that I wanted to be part of contributing to required mm. that kind of cross-sector uh, view, if you like. And so that has been a common thread throughout my journey over that 20 plus years of trying to see, okay, what's the issue here? What's that big system, um, you know, gap in a market, if you like, what's not working, what mm. do we want the world to look like and who needs to be part of that to, to make that happen. So it's been, um, you know, sometimes probably looked quite random, but there has, mm. has been a, a common thread there, which is this broader idea of, for me, when I look at the world, I see that most people either consciously or unconsciously have this sense that 
they've been led to believe that you have to pick, are you going through a career or life as someone who's trying to make money or are you mm. trying to do good and you need mm -hmm. to pick? And I don't believe that. So, so it's been this uh, mm. attempt to say, how do we bring those things back together and see, um, you know, what is the role of different sectors, different organisations, different funders to actually address any particular issue and, and what does that look like? So I've had, um, you know, I've been in the consulting space, I've studied you know, undergraduate and postgraduate uh, leadership, politics, international relations, counterterrorism, a whole bunch of uh, wow. different things. But uh, but it really has been this this attempt to say, business is a really powerful agent for change in the world. But mm -hmm. if we're going to use it in that way, we have to think beyond just profit maximization, whether that's as a business owner or as uh, an investor or a philanthropist. So how do we look at the world um, in that bigger picture sense? I love it because, I mean, just the other week I was in a client meeting, I was talking about businesses being a force for good. And it was almost like, there was an aha moment um, with the person across the screen, like you don't have to choose between no. making money and doing good. Can you elaborate more on that? And like yeah. your journey and your kind of raised consciousness of seeing that these two things don't are not necessarily mutually exclusive, that they can coexist. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, and even for, for your listeners, it would probably be the same. If I look back, say, in my own family's history of different businesses that they've set up or run over time, or just mm. look around today at the businesses that are there, the truth is the roots of business are not in a place that is pure profit maximization. Indeed. Hardly anyone starts a business with that as their driver, especially their main driver. Certainly some lifestyle aspects can be part of that and setting your family up um, to be comfortable and financially secure can be yep. one of the factors that are appealing about business. But people tend to start a business because they have, they see a gap in a market or they have a product or a service they're passionate about that they think mm. will add value to people's lives and they want to share that. And so if we're actually honest about the roots of business, if we look at how deeply human it is to mm. engage in commerce and trade and bartering, that is part of who we are and not in a way that is about exploiting others or, um, mm. you know, and the negative connotations that, that have become part of a more modern sense of business when we have tended to focus on it's about shareholder profit maximization and, and these very narrow ideas of business. Mm. So, so I, I just think it's about people stepping back and saying, Oh, rather than just swallow that and, and assume it's correct. Mm. How about I look at myself and, and those that I know who have started businesses and, and see what does this actually look like? And, and we will see a very different picture when you look either historically or in your own um, context of, of what business is. And I think, Part of that shift, the mindset shift, if you like, that then begins to see business in that way, then also gives us a sense of uh, agency and responsibility yeah. with that because suddenly we can make decisions in a different way that actually can contribute in really positive ways because your business is having an impact, whether positive or negative. You just may not be conscious of it. 
That's really powerful. I love what you're saying a hundred percent and it really does resonate. And I can relate to going that down this journey of, you know, increasing kind of awareness of the fact that I'm not motivated solely by profit maximization. I'm very mission driven. And I think most entrepreneurs are when they stop and pause and look at really what motivates them and what they're doing. And so one can derive, you know, this sense of um, fulfillment, sense of, um, you know, being a force for good and a sense of strong purpose as an entrepreneur. But I'd love to flip this a little bit and move away from, I guess, the positive woo-woo feelings of being purpose-driven and seeing how one is part of a wider systems change or stakeholder maximization and speak to, I guess, the heavy kind of negative feelings of this sense of responsibility. And you've got this concept of the Mother Teresa trap. What is that? And tell us more. Yeah, so I often talk to people about both the Mother Teresa trap and then how to actually avoid that because, um, you know, if there's a downside to something, it's good to be conscious of it and then figure out, okay, how do I actually want to intentionally engage with this? And in many respects, if you look at some of those ideas that come back to what we talked about before of if we've separated out doing good and making money, people can fall into a trap of when they then start to say, okay, how do I want to contribute or what does it look like to give back or to have a positive impact in the world. There can be this um, sort of flipping into an unhealthy saviour complex type piece of I will come in and I have the answer, um, you've got a problem, here's the solution, and and uh, there's this disconnect, mm. if you like, and a lack of respect and a really unhealthy power dynamic that can come into play mm. when we shift gears really rapidly like that uh, to to try to then be someone who is contributing and making a difference um, in that way. Mm. There's also, you know, if you look at some of the the aspects of the the ways in which there was some criticism of someone like Mother Teresa stepping into uh, a different culture and not necessarily being conscious of her own bias or the components of what were the driving forces of those actions or behaviours and how did that mm. sit within the local context you were then attempting to make um, a positive impact on mm. because the the components that come with that Mother Teresa trap that I'm speaking about are some of the tendencies to, uh, if you like, romanticise suffering so we can uh, mm. begin to try to say, okay, well, what is the the by drawing attention to the lack or you may have heard the the phrase around poverty tourism so people tending to then want to go into a context where there is really uh, difficult circumstances that people are living in and mm. as someone trying to uh, fix that problem or solve that we can uh, can come in and almost look on again with that unconscious bias of our own um, superiority or sense mm. of, you know, that that we're not in that situation and we therefore have a have the answer or the solution. And the, the discomfort that comes there is that when that is unquestioned or when you have not done the work to figure out 
what you actually want to be part of contributing to and the best, most efficient and respectful way to go about that, Mm. you can end up getting some of the drivers wrong. So some of the criticisms, if you take more of that that trap around the Mother Teresa approach, can be that in order to continue to get people to stay interested in or to fund or give money to an issue, you need to be showing the images of deprivation and people in a, a difficult situation. And, and that can lead to a situation that doesn't actually incentivize you to solve that problem or be focused on how do I relieve this person's suffering and actually mm. make their life better. But it can be feeding into, if you like, that we can get the drivers the wrong way. So the trap is that if you if you mm. don't do the personal work and if you don't unpack these things, you can end up being in a situation where the the component of, of what success looks like or how you actually um, want to address this challenge can get confused. I'm not sure whether um, you've had much to do with some of the new types of entities like a B corporation and different mm-hmm. components that are, are around. But often in conversations related to people trying to think about these structures of how they'll run the business in a way that's more conscious, we get caught up on the, the wrong types of topics. So people will talk about things like how do we create mission lock? So how do we make sure that if, if we've set up an entity to care about a certain topic, it stays focused on that regardless of what new investors come in or what changes might occur? That mission lock issue also connects to this piece that I'm speaking about related to this disconnect of how do you incentivize the right types of behaviors. If you've identified a problem currently and you set up an organization to be working on that issue, but you then obsess over something like mission lock, Mm-hmm. you aren't coming at that problem and saying, what would it take to actually eradicate this? How do we make ourselves irrelevant over time by actually addressing this problem and making it not a, an issue in the world? So some of these pieces are about the consciousness to really um, frame and think about and and respectfully understand the context you're operating in, what you're trying to achieve and the best way to go about that. And I think the the piece that can be unhelpful or, or happen accidentally that we need to try to avoid is that making one person, even someone whose intentions are extraordinary, turning them into that saint-like figure or the heropreneur, as people often talk about, can can lead to a whole bunch of unintended consequences. And yet what you you need to be able to do if you're really wanting to contribute and address big, messy, complex problems is to have that that different approach that thinks more broadly about who is best placed to address a particular issue. What does that look like and, and how do we um, actually start to create situations where we um, we don't have to be the answer to everything? So I'm not, I'm not mm. sure about you, but in mm. the businesses and, and different interventions that I've set up over time, I've always come in and, and said, one of my jobs is to make myself redundant. So if I keep this as I am the answer to the, the, the problem and everything revolves around me, you limit what you can do. And so that mm. piece in terms of avoiding the, the Mother Teresa trap 
is to say no one person or one organisation will create impact or be, be able to claim attribution for big, complex issues being solved in the world. And so we have to draw out some of the the ego and personality that's put around those things and instead be really clear on what do we bring, so what's our part of that puzzle, and how do you then bring the right players into the mix and collaborate together to actually achieve change. That's so powerful, um, Bessie. I'm just like, I'm lost for words. Um, You said something um, there's a need for leaders to do some personal work to unpack their motivation for why they're doing what they're doing and essentially put egos at the door and think very clearly about what's my role to play in trying to bring about this wider, whether it be systems change or, you know, trying to tackle some social issue. So in terms of leaders doing the personal work, what kind of practical tips or like, tools techniques do you advise how should they go about in I guess looking inward to check themselves well one of the things that I am a big fan of and that I think is definitely part of this mix so whether you're coming at this as uh, a funder from a philanthropic space or an impact investor or you're a non-profit leader or someone who's actually running and, and implementing the kind of projects out there in the world the The answer to that question is the same in that it's this sitting with paradox of learning to dance between on one side, it's not about you. And on the other side, it is about you, right? So there, there is this deep personal work that, that you've referred to there that has to happen because if that foundational piece isn't in place and if we don't have a sense of you know, who am I? What are my values? What's important to me in terms of how I behave, how I make decisions, where I mm. put to work in the world, my time, talent and treasure? If we're not clear on that and clear on the aspects of what we want to be part of contributing to in the world in terms of our bigger picture vision, mm-hmm. then it's it's really difficult to sustain over long periods of time the kind of work that we're talking about because you will either get burnt out because you will go too hard, <laughs> too fast, or you'll feel uh, disillusioned and resentful because you'll end up just um, doing what others tell you is important or worthwhile, but you won't have that sense of fulfilment or purpose yourself. So it is deeply personal, but then it's also holding intention with that, the fact that part of the work is to get to a place where you also realise it's not about you, it's bigger Mm. than you. And Mm. so what is the appropriate level of respect and understanding of context that you need to bring into the work to be able to ensure that there aren't, um, you're not in that situation if we go to the piece around, say, ego or, or what are those motivations Over particularly the last 20 years, I have seen so often that despite good intentions, a problem is not only not addressed, it can often be that we make it worse. And yet we can Mm. be sitting or speaking at a conference or sitting at a dinner party and congratulating ourselves about how generous we were or the money we gave, the, the project we ran. And yet we have completely misunderstood on the ground what actually happened and the consequences of that work. And so that's why it's so important because unlike if you were simply, say, starting up a tech business 
And part of the work was to, you know, design an app and it didn't work out. Mm. There's no major consequence to that. You might have lost some time and money um, and wasted a bit of, um, you know, your customer's customers' time in that process, but there's not a disastrous consequence to that. Mm. One of the pieces that you need to keep in mind in this kind of work is uh, in Rattel's work when he spoke about wicked problems, he mm. he had this phrase where he said, if you're dealing with wicked problems, so these entrenched complex uh, issues in the world, you have no right to be wrong. And that can feel overwhelming because you can say, well, then I'm paralysed, like I, I can't can't get this wrong. And And I don't I don't want people to feel that way, but it is about saying there is a responsibility when you step into this space of trying to address social or environmental problems and contribute in the world that you are raising people's expectations. You are claiming certain outcomes are going to occur. And so there does need to be thought and, uh, you know, some reflective practice that goes on in the designing of that. So the the short answer to your question is it is about learning to dance with paradox, dance with these different things. So you need to be able to sit with the fact that um, on the one hand, you have to be really thoughtful because you have no right to be wrong when you're messing with people's lives. On the other hand, you have to be willing to try and experiment and have that designerly disposition to your work. So they can seem like contradictions, but you need to have both. Mm. Equally, you need to hold both of the spaces around this being about you and and doing your personal work before you try to lead others, but it equally not being about you. So that would that would be how I would um, get people to think about it. it. It sounds quite complex, and it sounds like how does one know how to navigate that? And you know, it sounds like one would need a guide, a mentor, a coach of some sorts to help in navigating this tension between these opposing concepts, right? Yeah. I mean, that's certainly been my experience in the last 20 years because what I see is we're very quick to and we understand that we will need to bring in people to help us design a business model or design a program or Mm -hmm. frame up what our uh, investment strategy is going to be. And, And so these types of things we naturally understand that there needs to be some expertise come into that space. And yet there's this different approach that that comes to and makes an assumption that when we are bringing in the components around doing good, that good intentions are good enough. So if I'm saying, well, I'm helping around education, so I've given a donation to set up a school in Mozambique, then that has to automatically be a good thing and it's assumed that there will naturally be positive, only positive outcomes of that Mm. donation or intent. Uh, But as you said, we have to understand and give respect and space to the equally complex work that is happening um, as you step into that doing good component of business. Incredible. That's really helpful. Essentially, you're saying good intentions are not good enough. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 They don't determine the outcome. No. Yeah. And um, before we, we, we got online, we were talking about the discomfort around incredible wealth. Can you unpack that? Sure. I mean, it's interesting because when I say that to people often um, they'll say, Oh, 
no, that that doesn't make sense. I mean, everyone's trying to earn more money and everyone wants wants more and, and we're living in a world where that's not true at all. The, the driver is to have more, earn more uh, and set yourself and your family up. Mm. And while on the surface that may seem to be the case, you don't have to look very far to see these unconscious but deeply held uh, beliefs and, and the discomfort piece I spoke about mm. with incredible wealth. So, you know, if you look at um, people like Mackenzie Scott, who very publicly, you know, announced when post-divorce, when she was in that category of very significant wealth, mm. the speed at which people in a, when they're in the public eye and come into money will make it very clear, I'm giving it all away. I, you know, there's that distancing of of themselves from the money, in a sense that uh, the giving away of money means that they are still, you know, a good person, a decent person. There's this sense of, um, is it even okay for one person or a small group of people to have um, that sort of concentrated wealth, if you like? In yeah. Australia, there's um, uh, an example that still is constantly in the, the headlines uh, around Melanie Perkins, who was the co-founder of Canva, who you mm. may have may use Canva. And, I use Canva all the time. Yeah. And she has very publicly said, you know, that she'll be giving away all of her fortune and that the word all is is in headlines very regularly in capital letters, um, you know, giving away all of the fortune. And it's framed in this way that both automatically assumes that the best way to uh, make a difference or contribute is to give away, so the separation of money and that donation equals good outcome, which goes back mm. to our previous challenge of it's actually it's not a straightforward thing to give away money well and get outcomes. It takes work. Um, and yet there's a, a disconnect there for people. So I think mm. that, um, you know, mm. I, I would argue that most people who are giving away money and much of what we see in that philanthropic space is mm. actually not being effectively used and not effectively getting uh, outcomes achieved through it. And so, the the consciousness to actually question that and mm. say part of the job that comes with this incredible privilege that we have when we do have wealth and when we have decision-making rights over where capital will be allocated is, again, going back to that piece of, okay, well, what do we want to be part of? Mm. And then how do you either yourself or bring on board people who do understand that area how do you look at what are the current barriers or blocks or, or challenges in that space and figure out where are those points of leverage? How could you intervene in the system in a way that would get the best outcomes? And my experience in the last 20 years has been that very rarely is it simply throwing more money at a problem that solves it. It's about testing different things out. It's about uh, figuring out okay, what works here? And then it may work for a certain period of time and then it doesn't work. Uh, and so it's that uh, iteration and refinement that goes along with 
attempting to solve a certain problem but you have to know what success looks like and what you're actually trying to achieve mm. and then come at it from that so whenever i'm working with an organization that for example says that they need to do a capital raise and they need to take bring on investors the work that i will do with them is to understand okay well what are you saying you need that money for because mm. then we can decide what is the best type of capital to actually bring into the mix because the answer isn't always money it isn't always an investment but equally it isn't always a grant so i've seen in plenty of countries around the world people take on grant funding for things that actually there was a really straightforward business case and they could have got a straightforward um, mm. line of credit or a loan or um, some factoring finance to to address that issue and yet they've used a grant which then means they haven't actually had the same um, formality or structure around designing the business to connect it to okay we're bringing mm. this on to buy a certain piece of machinery to increase our revenue and sales so mm. the the incentivizing of the right behavior when capital is used well and when you use the right type of capital at the right time you actually dramatically increase the kind of outcomes you achieve because you have structured it correctly and you've incentivized the right behavior so my sort of uh pushback around that discomfort with considerable wealth there's a few factors one is that actually you can often have incredible impact by using your capital in a range of ways. You can do some long-term patient loans that are just the return of the capital, but no interest. You can do some pieces where you take massive risk and you really um, catalyze something that no one else would invest in yet, but you do get paid a significant return if it works, but you've taken the risk. So you've allowed it to happen in the world. Equally, there are situations where you may say the best piece to do here is to give a grant for this bounded piece of work uh, and it isn't connected to attempting to make a financial return. But you have to look at what you're trying to achieve and then decide the most effective and efficient way to incentivise the right behaviour in that, that process mm. around how you spend the money. And so that's sort of one of the, the components related to the discomfort the other other aspect that i would say is let's pretend for a minute that we don't question whether um it's a bad thing to have wealth if if you just want to assume that that that's a given then my question back to you would be well hang on if only people who are greedy or selfish or out with um, bad motives have wealth and have the decision making rights around capital then is that the world that you want because do you want a situation where only those types of people are making decisions and so people who are attempting to address a big social or environmental challenge for example have to go to them and, and beg for money that's not yeah. the situation we would want so the the shifting of a power dynamic and saying actually if i can have in my control and decision-making rights, significant wealth, and I think about it in the right way and I'm thoughtful in how I put it to work in the world, then I can make an incredible difference. So don't let that old stereotype make you uncomfortable with stepping into a, a position where you actually have uh, that the privilege and opportunity that can come with money. 
So powerful, um, Bestie. Um, when you were talking about the discomfort around incredible wealth, and you gave the example of the founder of Canva that wants to give away all her money. And I guess I was just reflecting, what is it about wealth that makes folks uncomfortable? What are these subconscious narratives that we take on about what it means to be a person of wealth that would lead to one want to, wanting to give it all away? And that's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with giving it all away. But I just, I've been in, I've been in rooms where folks that are very passionate about social change and philanthropy will often kind of shame wealth. Yes. Um, yeah, it happens a lot. Yeah. And kind of condemn those that are wealthy, but in the same breath are raising money to bring about social change. And so I see the contradiction and the kind of hypocrisy in, in like that narrative. It, it's, it's quite, um, it's, it's very strange to me. Um, you know, a lot of us have taken on on board these kind of false narratives of what it means to be a person of wealth. And I was really intrigued by everything you were saying. Um, I wonder, is this very much inspired from people that you've observed with their kind of coming into wealth story? Is it inspired by your personal journey with coming into wealth? Um, just really keen to unpack more of that yeah. subtle so, implied narrative. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I have seen it over and again in many iterations with investors and philanthropists and the, even the way they think about or talk about those two different hats, if you like, of whether they've got their philanthropic hat on or their investor hat. There is a, um, not only a comfort, but a sense that they are a decent human being when they yeah. have their philanthropic hat on because they're yep. giving. Yep. But then there is this awkward sense and very private and not talking about numbers and not talking about how wealthy they are when it comes to investments and being very closed doors and, and mm. this is not something that's for public conversation. So there's a, um, a, a strong distinction in how people, even the same person, thinks about and talks about their money uh, depending on which of those hats they're wearing. Mm. But there's also, um, you know, there's deep aspects related to, for many people, religious components of their upbringing and, and a sense mm. of being told that, you know, the the aspects of in, incredible wealth is, is not appropriate or it's not godly or it's, you know, there's this uh, disconnect for many people in their upbringing around what that looks like and assumptions being made or comments that were repeated to them as they grew up around that in order to have that kind of wealth, someone must have been incredibly selfish. They must have been willing to um, take advantage of other people who were hardworking. And like, so there's narratives and stories that are deeply wrapped up in people's conscious or unconscious sense of, of what it means to be wealthy mm -hmm. and then um, how that plays out. But I think one of the pieces that's important to really pick up on in, in what you were saying in the framing of the question mm. is that a big part of the problem comes down to where we position the sense of, um, of power, if you like. So if it's about money rather than what are the choices an individual person has made mm. in both how they made that money 
and how they put it to work in the world. So the money itself is actually neutral. It's neutral, kind of, you know, yeah. Irrelevant. It well, doesn't have, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't so have personality. Not a, mm. Nope. And, and there isn't a set way that money behaves. behaves yeah. It's how a person chooses to do that. And I think one of the components that's important and part of why I love working with business owners and, and leaders that are, um, in that space of actually generating and creating wealth through a business mm -hmm. is that when you can influence someone at that early stage as they build up their wealth and come into that space, then there's this beautiful power of they can actually be proud of how they made the money as well because for some people there is um, a lot of personal work shame. that has to go on if, mm. for example, yes, if there's shame around how their family came into money or what, you know, there can be uh, significant work that you need to do to process that and get to a place where you say, okay, it now doesn't uh, serve anyone for me to just dwell in a place of guilt and shame. I have this privilege or this platform. Now what do I do with it? So, so some people's journey is about processing shame and guilt related to how they came to money. But in the sense of the person who's building up a business, if you can, from starting now, be thinking about the decisions you have within your control, how you're spending money, how you treat your team, what your supply chain looks like. If you can be building a business that even if all it ever did was break even, it had made mm. the world a better place, everything else is is upside, right? So it's all positive from there. Mm. So there's there's a component that, that gives us an extra level of uh, impact in the world if we can use business in that way. But if we're in a situation where there is already wealth, there's already money on the table, part of the, the journey there for the, that I have seen and been part of with others over the years uh, is that we need to bring back together our our concepts again around the the lens that we look at all of the resources we have at our disposal. So mm -hmm. not having these different tracks of how we think about philanthropy and how we think about our investments. Because when you see that, there's a few things at play. There's often a gendered aspect in families where women are given aspect around some of the philanthropy, but even then yep. it's not about the investment of the corpus or the endowment. It's about the grant giving Grants, component. Yeah. So a tiny mm -hmm. percentage, right? So there's often a gendered component to that, but there is also the lack of really tapping into what all of that capital could be doing in the world in a positive sense. So the power of something like impact investment, when you don't look at it as an asset class, but you look at it as a lens, is mm. to say, even in your philanthropic arm or your you know family office, you can be looking at all of the components of what are the investments doing, not just what is the granting doing. Because in traditional philanthropy, the reality is that in most instances, what people have invested in is actively causing the problems that they're then trying to solve with their tiny percentage of granting each year. So you're investing in things that are destroying the environment and then giving a fraction of a percent of that to try to fix the problem you just caused. Mm. That mm. does not make sense. Mm. We are smarter than that and, and we are far enough along the journey now to have decades and decades of track record and evidence and precedent to show these things. And so 
part of that aspect, again, in answer to your question of what I have seen is people going on that journey, starting to question, okay, how do we put this to work in the world? And again, not in a way that says we need to push everything into the category of it's all about a grant and philanthropic donations have just give it all away so that we're not associated with it. But how do we put that work, there's different buckets that the, the money sits in, how do we put it to work in the most effective way possible? Some of it to be generating uh, more wealth, that's totally fine, but do that in an aligned way that you can also be proud of. Some of it where it's catalyzing new things or it's being a patient capital or it's creating a security for something that can push into new territory that couldn't have happened without your capital. And some that is in a granting sense, just being given without strings attached, but done in a thoughtful way that actually has ways of tracking and measuring if it's making the difference it's claiming. So it's not just a good intention. Bessie, you're speaking my language. I'm so sad that you're going to be in town and I'm not around. Like, we need to go for a drink and... Next time, we'll we'll make yeah, it happen. next time. <laughs> what you said, two things you said, is the emerging wealth owner, Yes. right? Um, that's building their business and coming into wealth and eradicating shame and embracing pride in how you're making money and embracing yeah. that narrative. A lot of the community that listens to this podcast are that very demographic. Um, what do you recommend and what steps do you recommend they take in moving from shame to pride and being able to be conscious and holistic in their, I guess, trying to be impactful and effective with being impactful? Yeah. A critical first step in that is to really sit down and think about and be honest with yourself about what are the things you actually have control over? Where do you have decision-making rights and where do you only have influence and where are things out of your control? Because very quickly if you come into this way of thinking and you start to frame up these massive spaces that you want to be creating change in immediately but they are outside of your scope of influence, you will be demoralised pretty quickly or overwhelmed or end up being paralysed and doing nothing. So thinking through that, the reality is if you have a business, there are very clear things that you're making decisions over of where you're spending money, where you're mm. putting time, who you're engaging to do certain work in terms of contracting different people, employing different people. And so the, the starting point that I get people to think about is, okay, look at your business. Uh, for me, there's many different ways that you can be creating impact, but often I pull out three key areas. One is that you might focus on uh, the, a customer focus. And for people whose business where that is the case, it's often service-based businesses and people where they're so passionate about the people they work with and the kinds of transformations or change that person gets when they work with you. And so the way that you think about doing good in a business in that way that allows you to have this pride in the work that you do is again we're wanting to bring back together and not be uncomfortable with the making money piece so mm. we're saying okay if there's a customer focus to what we do we have to be really clear on well, who do we work with who do we serve who are those customers that we're adding this value to and what would our value proposition to them need to look like how would we relate to them and engage with them in a way that we would create incredible transformation or change 
in their lives through them engaging with our product or service. So that would be the positive side of your creating positive impact for them. The piece that relates to your business in that sense, where you are unapologetically then driving revenue into the business is to say, when you do that well, that customer focus, you will create raving fans who will go and tell other people about you. They will drive revenue into your business because they will be a recurring purchaser from you and they will tell others who will then come into your ecosystem. So there's this beautiful self-fulfilling and reinforcing piece Mm. that happens by the focusing on delivering that value and that positive change for the customer, you drive revenue into the business. So it creates the blended value. The second category uh, that is often one that people in the business space can use to start to bring the doing good back into the business itself and to feel proud of what they're creating is around that team focus. So for many, many businesses, the bulk of the money you're spending is on your team. Mm -hmm. You're paying staff. And so you can look at that and say, okay, what are the conditions of those staff? How am I paying them? What does that look like? What's the environment I've created, the culture I'm creating that they are having to come to work in every day? And how do I make sure that is as good as it can be and that I'm really... uh, you know, treating them well and that those flow on impacts of those people go home to a family and they're either then stressed, exhausted and, you know, tense or they're in a good good place and, you know, in terms of their well-being and their, their mental health. So there's components that you can focus on related to your team, which again, when you look at how that plays out for the business, they then show up for your customers in a better way. You then have massive reductions in turnover costs and having to retrain new hires because you've burnt through people. There's, there's impacts that drive the, you know, improvement in your bottom line through focusing on the good for that team itself. And then just very briefly, a third area that you can look at, this is particularly if you have a product-based business, is around that production side, so the back end of your business. And this is one that most people like to ignore because when we have production-type issues, we're often looking at how do we reduce costs and outsource and and, um, have cheaper supply chains. And so we choose to not ask questions about supply chains that we should be asking. So with a production focus, it's actually looking at those decisions you have control over and making very intentional decisions about um, who are you purchasing from, what are the conditions of the workers in in your supply chain, how does that look, what is your packaging, what are the consequences in those types of spaces. And, again, not just stopping there and, therefore, now my product's going to be way too expensive, but embedding in the business the components that then drive revenue and mean that you have increased quality of product? How do you position that so that for a growing market who are demanding to have transparency in supply chains and to be able to understand the conditions of workers, you market yourself in a way that actually allows you to charge appropriately for the quality of the the products that you're creating? So that's the starting point. There's lots of different ways you can bring that doing good back into the business, but it is about figuring out where are those pieces that I already have decision-making rights? What are the levers I can pull and how do I then begin to think about and design my business in a way that I can be proud of and really conscious of both components of increasing the doing good through the business but also doing it in a way 
that drives and increases uh, mm. the financial sustainability and profitability of the business at the same time. Wow. So insightful. Um, tell us more about you and how you help leaders. Like, So the, the work that I do is uh, both, I've got a one-on-one component. So I'm working with leaders in 11 countries at the moment in a one-on-one capacity um, where I deeply am doing that work around their values, picturing what they want to be part of in the world. How does that work within their particular organization and, and their business uh, so with that's with non-profit leaders as well as business owners so it's anyone who's really in that space of wanting to contribute to make the world a better place um, the the one-on-one coaching type work is uh, appropriate in that category but then I also do small group uh, programs so again we've got a program just wrapping up at the moment which um, works in six month blocks. So there's, there's two rounds of that, that, that leaders can, can go through if they're interested, which is, um, a lovely component to, to walk on that journey with others, because often this can be quite an isolating, lonely journey for mm. people. Mm-hmm. And so having other people who are thinking about grappling with the same types of issues can be a really helpful uh, way to engage in that. So for me, my focus, if you like, in terms of creating impact has been to say, I've really narrowed down and uh, am working with a much smaller targeted group of, of leaders out there in the world because what I have seen over the last 20 years is that I can design, you know, I've worked with big, large funding bodies, the United Nations um, governments of countries, and we can design these incredible interventions. I can design a business model that could have impact. But when the individual leader or business owner hasn't done their own personal work, very rarely do things play out well. And you certainly don't have the impact you could have. And so for me, it's about anyone who's interested in going a bit further on this journey it's about us having a conversation and, and working out, you know, are we a good fit? And then how do I walk that journey with you? What is the best way to do that? Sometimes it is in a small group. Sometimes it is uh, one-on-one. But both of those capacities for me are about that combining what I call a double-sided legacy. So how do you not have mm. to have it all be about selfless um, giving that burns you out and drains you of life? but creating a legacy that is deeply personally yours and feels fulfilling and meaningful to you, but that equally is about creating greater impact in the world itself, in in the areas that you care about. Wow, that's powerful. I think I need to kind of reflect on that, a double-sided legacy. Yeah. Powerful. How can people learn more about you or get in touch with you if they'd like to, yeah? Yeah, so the if if they're wanting to just sit with some of these ideas for a little bit longer, I have a podcast called Both And oh, nice. with Bessie Graham. So instead of either or, you can have both and. <laughs> um, so they could listen in to some of the episodes there and just let some of these ideas kind of sit in your mind for, for a bit longer because it is a lot and we've talked about a lot of things today. Um, but they could also uh, go to my website, bessiegraham.com, and get in touch with me via the website. As I said, for me, this is about a really personal uh, connection. It's not about masses of people. It's about seeing um, 
how I can walk that journey with someone mm. who passionately wants to make a difference in the world. So they can get in touch with me via the website or connect on Instagram or LinkedIn. Wow. This has been so rich. Like, I feel like this is an episode I need to like listen to over and over again and just get my head around it. Cause it's been just like, I find myself just, I've taken like pages and pages of notes and I just need to, I'd love to listen to your podcast as well. I'm, a podcast junkie as well as a host so always so looking for new always looking yeah. for new shows um yeah. so i'm excited to to hear that you have a podcast as well so gosh thank you thank you so much i don't know if you've got any lasting words or comments no hopefully i haven't uh you know done the fire hose I, these are things i could talk about underwater i, I love <laughs> it and i just feel like there's such there's such richness and there's so many of these angles that we need to think about and unpack. And so if, if nothing else, um, if it's planted some seeds for people of different things they just want to think about over time, then I'm, I'm really happy with that. But I do hope that it's been helpful for people. Thank you so much. Well, goodness, I loved that. I loved how Bessie hit the nail on the head that this concept of making money and doing good are not mutually exclusive. And quite often in a society, there's implied message that they are, that we make money in a dirty way or we make money from dirty kind of um, impure motives and we do good in a clean way. We do good from a really pure heart and a very altruistic mindset. And she's saying they're not mutually exclusive. And I can attest to the fact that they're not through the work that I do with many clients and families that I've served. They're not mutually exclusive. Business is often deeply human, as she says, and not exploitative. And I think it's really important to sit with that because often it colors the mindset of the rising generation and the founders that are building their wealth, that there's something dirty, there's something wrong about what they're doing, and there's not. I loved when she spoke about the Mother Teresa trap, the importance of not being so outcome-oriented, but really being inward-focused, and doing this inner work to excavate and unpack the discomfort around incredible wealth. And... This abundance anxiety is one that many have to grapple with um, and unfortunately alone. Um, unfortunately, where are the places and spaces one brings the fears, the anxiety, the isolation, the loneliness that comes with immense financial success, right? Um, and working privately with someone to unpack that is such a gift and really helps with the effectiveness of one's outcomes, right? Getting very clear on one's values, getting very clear on how that would be actualized in, 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 in behaviors, actualizing through one's vocation, so such important sacred work. And I think we move from this journey of being, having this deep discomfort around this incredible wealth and this abundance anxiety to becoming proud of one's identity, right? So one can heal through all the trauma and all the, I guess, kinks in one's emotions, in one's psyche, and look through this through a healthy lens such that we can be effective philanthropists, effective change makers, effective successors, effective business leaders, right? Effective family leaders in our various respective um, places and spaces in life. 
And I loved, lastly, Bessie's kind of charge about looking through what one does through a very holistic lens and this concept of a double-sided legacy. So looking both on the investing side and the philanthropy side to see that everything is congruent and that we are being effect effective and impactful on both sides of the coin. So really love that conversation. My goodness, it was such powerful work. Um, powerful messages rather that Bessie left us with and if you'd like to explore further encourage you to get in touch with her if you're dealing with this anxiety around abundance and this discomfort around incredible work um, happy to speak to you as well you can reach out to me via email and we can talk privately around about that and I can recommend some additional resources so my email address is na at mikeanani.com and yeah happy to be of service. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, take good care and God bless you.